yeah. So many, so many, so many damn books. So welcome to So Many Damn Books. Hi, I'm Drew. I'm Christopher. Uh, and before we get to our conversation about a particular book today, we have a fun announcement, a little teaser of something coming up later this episode. Yeah, we have Emily Sinjan Mendel, Sinjin Mendel. We'll find out how <laughs> to pronounce her last name correctly because she is on this episode. Uh, she wonderfully agreed to talk to us about her Tournament of Books nomination. She's, she's, her book, Station Eleven, is one of the 16 books this, this time on the Morning News Tournament of Books. Yep, it was our first book uh, for this podcast here. As you know, because you're dedicated listeners Indeed. and you love everything that we do. Uh, so we're excited to talk to her. In just yeah, a on bit. the phone and, and find out about her life as a superstar literary author. Well, let's just jump right in. Audiobooks, that's what we're talking about. And I think as a podcast listener, you listener are probably, I think the people who listen to podcasts and the people who listen to audiobooks, that's a that's quite a Venn diagram. There's more people that listen to both than neither. I am on one of the sides of that Venn diagram. You're not an audiobook person. Why? I am not. Um, I, it's uh, twofold. And I think both of the things uh, come into the audiobook that we're going to talk about later. Okay. In particular. One of them is speed. I like reading at whatever speed the book is taking me in. Right. And I tend to be a very fast reader. Sure. Um, That's and, a huge surprise for all of our listeners. <laughs> and often an audiobook, I'm like, okay, you are, you're taking your time. I need, you know, and yeah, you can speed it up, which is a thing. But sometimes it gets clippy and weird. Yeah, um, and it and and you start to not understand the words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean I understand. I I think that that is the that is my problem with audiobooks as someone who enjoys them. Mm. Um, is is that same thing, and even the other way too, where sometimes I would like to go back and reread something or even flip back. Mm-hmm like 30 pages before and remind myself of like a character or yeah. something. And there's no, I mean, there is the back 30 seconds or like you can put bookmarks, but I, I usually have my iPod in my back pocket and mm-hmm. I don't know. I, uh, I obviously mean iPhone, but back when I had, <laughs> back when I had an iPod, I downloaded uh, Lord of the Rings, like a full cast recording of Lord oh, of the cool. Rings. Um, there was like 40 characters yeah. and, and the, it's scored and they, all the songs are sung and everything. And, um, I didn't know my iPod was on shuffle <laughs> and I was just like, well, Lord of the Rings make no sense. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why people like that book. <laughs> and that was my only time trying to read Lord of the Rings actually. So really? Yeah. I never read it. Wow. Is it any good? The second reason that I don't like audiobooks sure. um, tends to be I it's a performance-based thing. That's fair. Um, I grew up as an actor and I'm still very much involved in performance of all kinds of ways. And so some of those like full cast recordings, the BBC just did a full cast recording of Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's Good Omens. Mm-hmm. 
which I mean, I've read that book, but that audiobook slash almost more of a radio play is awesome. It's like it's fully produced, everybody has voices, and there's a more of a performative sense to it. Right. So often with audiobooks, it's like, I've said this to you before and you've given me an eyebrow about it. There's like audiobook voice. Mm. And it's, you know, it's it's stately and it's measured and the emotion that sometimes is on the page, they don't go all the way with it. I, I understand I understand that criticism, but just don't choose that audiobook because they're not all like that. Right. And I've I've certainly listened to some that aren't like that. Um, but that tends to be the thing that, you know, it I guess it's that same thing of of being forced to read great expectations before I was ready. Mm-hmm. Of just like that wasn't the book for me, and like being, and in the same way that you you were forced to listen to this thing, yeah, to, and and it soured you on the idea of them. So yeah, I think that there's something about that in reading, or 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 watching movies or any sort of um, culture that you build these walls, mm-hmm. and in some ways you're like that's my taste, um, but in other ways it's more like. Yeah, I had this bad experience. It's, you know, it's like people who don't want to name their kid, you know, Nancy because they knew a bad Nancy growing up. Right. Like that, that has no, can I start calling you Nancy Drew? Oh, oh man. Boom. <laughs> I won't do that. <laughs> Not often. Uh, yeah, actually recently, um, Fast Company published this article that uh, the title was "Your Brain on Audiobooks: Distracted, Forgetful, and Bored," uh, which was clickbait for sure. Because I, <laughs> as an audiobook enjoyer, uh, I clicked what on. It. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm all ready to like make an account to comment. <laughs> but I didn't even have to because it was the silliest article. They based their finding on 235 people uh, listening. To a section of Bill Bryson's uh, A Short History of Nearly Everything. Mm. And then they read it and they listened to it and they measured like brain activity. First of all, I love Bill Bryson. However, <laughs> listening to that book, which is actually something that I have done. Yeah, like your mind wanders because it's just an it's just a very well told conversational uh, yeah. encyclopedia. Right. And so, yeah, you know, I, I imagine if you're in a room in a blank space, you know, listening to this, it's not the best. That's, there's something interesting about the, the difference between reading a thing and listening to it, because it does, it does force you to interact in a different way. Absolutely. I feel like it'd be a very different study if you had like a Neil Gaiman short story, like the one that they released on uh, Audible for free a couple months ago, uh, Click clack the rattle bag which was like a kind of terrifying short story of his that he read i feel like the scientists who i'm gonna put air quotes around that (laughs) who put that together uh were basically like i hate audiobooks how do we how do we prove it was like almost confirmation bias sort of study right and um anyway in that same article there was this there was this line which i think is really true is the ability to listen and daydream and still complete a chore might be exactly the point Mm. which that is kind of the amazing thing about audiobooks is times when i would be you know just cooking or just putting my clothes or something i'm 
I'm listening to a book, which I think is, I, I don't see that as being a negative. And maybe, yeah, I do a daydream, but if I realize I daydream, there is that 15 second back button. Yeah, I mean, for me, there's that sense of sometimes even when you're reading, you know, you might you might gloss a section because a, a, something triggers a thought and you're thinking, and you're still moving forward in time. So that, it's it, it can be similar. But I am one, I found that when I was listening to it while I was cooking or doing something else, it almost, I was still paying attention and getting everything, but I wasn't, I just wasn't as deeply engaged. Sure. Because I was, you know, split screened. Yeah. And, and ultimately there is, I'm sure a million studies on uh, multitasking that mm-hmm. come into play there. But I just think that, you know, audiobooks uh, apparently are a $1.2 billion industry. I believe in, that. In 2013. Big time. Um, and, and I think that they can be done amazingly well. Um, and, and they can add something to the narrative that you wouldn't have got reading. Mm-hmm. And a perfect example for me is uh, Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn, which was they had a voice for Nick and a voice for Amy. And that alone made it an incredible listen. Right. Uh, and, and things could hit really hard because it's, it's, it's first person. And I think that that actually is... is something that audiobooks can do really well is is putting a really good actor or a really good reader with with a text and creating that voice and so yeah. a first person voice is really the best way to consume an audiobook especially if you're if you're just dipping your toe in yeah i agree with that there's something you know it's that sense of making the voice come alive where when you're reading first person you you know you kind of hear it in your head but to be able to hear that person or, you know, somebody pretending to be that person saying those things. That's really cool. I do dig that. Um, perhaps not unsurprisingly, original audiobooks were uh, released by the Library of Congress for hmm. the Blind. Really? That's where they started, yeah. Interesting. So I think that that's kind of cool. Yeah, I dig that. And... And I think that that is, it is kind of amazing thing is just like, like that you can close your eyes and rest mm-hmm. and be reading. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a very cool thing. Yeah. That can be really nice too, especially in today's modern world when you're staring at screens and things for your whole day, it can be, you know, it's still pleasurable, but it can be wearying to like look at another thing very intently. Did you listen to this book on your um, Audible app? On your I did. Okay, so they're on the Audible app. I just wanted to talk about this for briefly for a second. There are these badges, like this weird like social media. Oh man, I turned that shit off. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but go I, on. I just am sort of curious. Like, I, I don't know. I, I just think it's sort of this really silly. Like, does everything need to be gamified? I mean, almost every app anymore has that stuff. It's really strange. (laughs) Another line, this is from a Wall Street Journal article, which I really love, was a new breed of literary omnivores, which... uh, Was this the one that was talking about how audiobooks are maybe the next big thing? Yeah, Yeah, that was back from like 2013. Yeah. But, uh, and then the Fast Company said, okay, so these Naratextosaurs. <laughs> and I really like the idea of being a Naratextosaur. That might be me, regardless if it's an audiobook or reading. And 
Yeah, I would describe myself that way as well. So, this is actually, before we tell you the title of the book that we listened to this week, since it's a mystery, since we didn't tell you last episode, yeah. um, uh, this is the beginning of our Tournament of Books coverage. Yeah, the uh, shortlist came out a couple of weeks ago, and As you if know, you're anything yeah. like us, you've been Fury. frantically trying to track down copies of all the books and get through them by March 1st. Yes. Or most of them. Yeah. I myself, I know I'm going to read 15. And I'm going to read 14. Uh, we're both skipping the Ferrante. Yeah, it's just, I don't have time to go read the first two books, and then this, the third book. Yeah, it seems like over like 1,500 pages or something. It seems like a lot. It's a lot! And like, if it's from everything I've heard, you have to read the other ones. Yeah, and I, I, uh, someone compared Ferrante to like a female um, Karlov Nosgaard. Interesting. Which makes me really interested in reading it. I was gonna say that's a good hook for you. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm a huge Nosgaard fan, um, and so I'm very, very excited to to jump into it. But I'm not gonna ruin it by jumping into the third book. Yeah. And I'm not going to read Roxane Gay's An Untamed State. Not because I don't like Roxane Gay. Because I do. I think she, she was great. I loved her comments on Lena Dunham's yeah. Dust Up. I thought she was so Brilliant. smart. Um, but I just, I don't know. Uh, my online book group read it. And just by the comments on that, I can just tell it's not a book that I'm going to like. So unless the book goes really far in the tournament, I'm just going to skip that one. That's fair. So this book, though, is um, Celeste Ng's... Everything I Never Told You. Everything I Never Told You. Which is a pretty good title. I like that title. Good title. Catchy title. Catchy opening lines. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I... This is, a, this is a strange book. It's It was a... It was perhaps the wrong book to get you to listen to audiobooks, Drew. Yes. I Yes. But and, that said, I'm willing to give audiobooks another shot, um... But yeah, this was this was not. To me, anytime that I reach for the 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 speed up button mm-hmm. um, on on the Audible uh, app, that's a failure. Like I should be enjoying yes. the way that they're deploying the book. And that... I went from from one speed to point two five to point five. Finally, by the end, I was at two times. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and and I I don't think that. I don't think that actually speaks to like it's bad narration or that it's a bad book. It just is the wrong marriage of these two things. And I think, you know, we were talking before about how the best book, the best audio books to me are the ones that you can really create a voice. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't because it wasn't first person. It was these close right. thirds and she didn't do enough changes in between them to really denote like I'm in Nath's head now. I'm in. Yeah, it was only when people spoke that there was really any shift in the vocal tone. Right. So everything I never told you is about this family. Uh, yeah, it's the 1970s. They're living in Ohio, and it's um, the husband is Chinese. The wife is like blonde, blue eyes American. Mm-hmm. They have three children, and the novel begins with the eldest daughter. Um, she's dead. It sort of has that like Dickensy grab you opening line of like, okay, we've got a dead body, 
that's where we're starting. But the whole idea is that the family doesn't know that she's dead yet. And it tracks you through their first morning. Right. That beginning actually set up the wrong expectation because mm-hmm. it's it's it was a very thriller beginning. Yep. And that is not what this book is. It's a really quiet meditation about the ways that your family can really screw you up. Mm-hmm. Um, and and ultimately, I think it's a pretty successful book in that regard. Yeah. I mean, part of the issue is that for so long while I was listening to the book, I was still waiting for that, the promise of that thriller hook to kick in. And mm. as I was realizing that it wasn't, it's just, it, you know, it's that problem that we have with so many books anymore that where it, the expectation is set up through the back cover copy or through reviews or just critical, this is the new whatever. Yeah. And it's not. For anyone who liked cereal. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're like, ah. If you like cereal, check out this paint on my wall. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was good. That was a deep joke right there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't appreciate it, Drew. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. All of these reviews were talking about how emotionally complex it is. And it actually, to me, was, wasn't. And I think that that was actually part of its strength was that, that they were drawing this sort of one-to-one relationships that you usually don't of just like, there's this, there's this daughter, uh, Hannah. She's the youngest. She's seven years younger than her, um, than her brother, who's the second, second oldest in the family. And she's forgotten. And it's pretty much like they don't pay attention to her. Mm -hmm. So she is a quiet, observant girl. It's very much one-to-one. But I think that also makes sense of of how people become who they are. We think that we're very complex in these things. But really, like a lot of our environment really explains where we come from and how we've ended up. I mean, it's very much a like nurture over nature kind of book. You look at this, but this was something that I actually didn't like about it. How, how simple it was. It was this idea that like the mother had, um, her mother had been pushing her her whole life to, you know, to marry well, like you're going to go to Harvard and you're going to meet a great man where she wanted to go and become a doctor. She wanted to be a scientist. She wanted to do things with her life. So she pushes that on her oldest daughter because she didn't do it very. And, and, but I think that it gave her some leeway in, in what story she was telling, which was this disappearance. It, It sort of, it sort of gave her the ability to color in some of these lines of how a family react could react to a disappearance. But it didn't push or something, or 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 it was the thriller that it wasn't a, like it well, there was no, promised a thriller and it right. wasn't. Or even though it, there was no pulse, yeah, it, that sense of of urgency of it felt like ticking boxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in that sense, you know, I didn't I didn't enjoy the experience of the book, but at the same time, it's not a bad book. It's no. just fine. It it does it is just ticking these boxes and saying. Okay, here's this thing. We're going to set up this expectation, then we're going to do this. We're going to set up this, and then we're going to do this. I wonder if I would have connected more to it had I... I mean, I'm I'm a white, middle-class male. And so I wonder if I would have connected to it more had I been of Chinese descent and, and noticed some of the the fabric that she's playing with 
in that regard of the of the race relations, which are a huge part of the book and are very interesting. But I I didn't I didn't have the emotional connection to that, and I'm curious if 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 that kept that put up a wall for me or not. That's interesting. I I also feel like she didn't go like those the race relation issue was big in the book, but every time it came up, it almost felt like now I've brought it up and now let me push on or push mm. it to the side. Like, you know, there are these moments where James specifically, the father, the patriarch of the family, is is dealing with um, prejudice in his daily life. And it was just sort of, again, it was like it was, the box was ticked. It was like, this happened and now, yeah, you know, there was never that sense of like, we're really going to get into but this. But also, it gave some great details of like, he's really into American cowboys. Like, that's mm-hmm. what he teaches at Harvard is a class on cowboys. Yeah. <laughs> Which is awesome. Yeah, I take that class. I mean, it all just ended up feeling ordinary. Yeah. And there's something about, A, the setup. It's not an ordinary setup. Just the no. idea of, okay, eldest daughter has disappeared. They find out that she's drowned in the lake. Setting up, the, you know, the grief, all of that. It's not an ordinary circumstance. But every every time I was listening, and part of it might have been the narration. Yeah. It just felt so... I wonder if I... Doo-doo-doo. Yeah, would I, would I have enjoyed it more if I had just read it? Um and or i don't know and uh, there were there were times when i kind of wished that the book was about different characters or or focused on more on nathan and hannah the yeah. the the brother and sister Siblings. that were still alive rather than focusing on marilyn who really didn't change in the whole book i really no. i really felt like she was a really that was her real by the numbers character yeah well and you know there's something about her character where it's just like you you peg her from moment one you're like okay you got screwed up by your parents now you're screwing up your kids you are unhappy you did you wanted more but you settled where are you going to end up and yeah she ends up exactly where she started pretty much i gotta say i don't uh i don't love talking about this book uh (laughs) it's i mean it's kind of weird because it sort of lives in the middle ground there's not a whole lot almost to talk about it doesn't force you it doesn't force conversation yeah it's like that's the first time this has happened to us really yeah when i don't like a book mm-hmm. i feel like the failing is in me and not in the book like mm-hmm. i I, w- I was just the wrong audience like i i shouldn't have picked it up when i did or or uh, but i think i should be a i i should allow myself to just not like a book and not find myself to be disappointed yeah, sometimes that does happen. I've picked up books and like you read the first 10 pages and you're like, wait a minute, this is not, I know that I would like this if I was reading it at a different time. But yeah, I en- I encourage you to, to tap into your dark side. <laughs> it is a cool thing, man, this idea that all of a sudden we drop what we're doing and pick up as many as 16 books. Probably not because we're well read. I had, but- I, had four, I had four of them read, so I'm, I, I had to pick up uh, 10 more. How many did you have read? I think I had, I did really well this year. I think I had f- six maybe that I'd already read. Wow, yeah. Um, or that like I already had or that were right there on my on my stack. Right. Well, we're not going to read from it because the audiobook will read from it. Go to the Amazon Audible page and, and check out the reading. And it could just be that we were the wrong audience. You could love it yourself. I mean, Amazon seemed to just think it was the best thing yeah. In the world. Um, if you do love it, uh, talk to us. Yes. Tell us about it. Tell yeah. us why, you, you know, 
we we have a an email address called so many damn books at gmail.com we also have a twitter and someday we will update our tumblr yeah uh so hello welcome to our podcast emily yeah thank you so much for joining us uh, oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate your enthusiasm for the book. Oh yeah, this we we both loved it. Yeah, it's amazing. And it was uh, it really brought we find when we both read it, it was one of the first books that made us finally be like, okay, let's start the podcast. We got to talk about this. <laughs> that is so cool to hear. Thank you. Yeah. Um, can I ask? This has been since we read the book an ongoing discussion between Christopher and I. Your huh? middle name, Sinjin or Saint John? Uh, St. John. Oh. Yeah, I, I think it's technically supposed to be St. John, but nobody told me that until I was like 11, and it was kind of too late, you know, <laughs> too settled on pronunciation, it's hard to switch. <laughs> so your parents didn't know that that was the pronunciation then? You know, my mother must have, because it was her her mother's maiden name, um, and she, she named me St. John or St. John, because she wanted to keep it the family. But it's one of those names where... I think in North America, the correct pronunciation would come across as kind of pretentious. So it's probably <laughs> why we thought it was St. John for so long. <laughs> yeah. I think the only reason... Did you know it because of Mad Men, Drew? Uh, no, because my... I remember reading, I think it was like Jane Eyre, there's a character, and and being in like a high school English class and being like, why is this guy's name St. John? And my teacher was <laughs> right. like, oh, it's Sinjin. And I was like, that's weird. <laughs> It's yeah. It's such uh, it's such a strange pronunciation. It just has no bearing whatsoever on the letters you're actually there. <laughs> I can never really get behind it. No. Uh, but that's a long lead into this being. Um, <laughs> we're we're here with em- Emily Saint John Mandel, uh, writer of many books, but most recently uh, Station Eleven. And um, Station Eleven is uh, it seems to have a, a level of popularity. Would you say, Emily? Yeah, it's just been extraordinary. Um, my first three books were published by a very small press, which which translated to less than phenomenal sales, just because you know, it's the nature of the way the book world is in this country. Um, with the fourth book, I knew I wanted to go with a bigger publisher you know, in the hopes of finding new readers. But it's really been beyond my wildest expectations for the book. It's just been an incredible year. How have you been accounting for that success of the book? I mean, is do you feel like you've written it? I mean, it seems like a com- it seems like a departure from your last three, which uh, I'm going to admit that I haven't read yet, but I definitely am going to. Um, oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it is a departure. My f- there are definitely some similarities. I think it's uh, it's fair to say that some of the themes are similar. Um, I tend to write about groups of people. Music seems to come in a lot. Um, themes of memory and amnesia and. Um, the importance of art in our lives. But the first three books were generally categorized as literary noir, or sometimes even as straight-up crime fiction. So it is a departure. Uh, It is very different from the first three books in a lot of ways. And the success of it, you know, it's partly... There is absolutely an element of chance to these things. Um, You know, being selected as a finalist for a National Book Award, it's just an incredible thing that completely changes your career. And it's not denigrating the book in any way to say that a different set of judges would have picked a completely different set of books. So, you know, there's definitely an element of luck and something like that. Um, I think there's a real appetite for books that could be called literary fiction, which is one of those terms that's obviously impossible to define. 
but that also have uh, genre elements, or you could say books that are literary fiction, but also plot-driven. I think there's an appetite for that. Um, I heard you. Yeah, those are my only theories. I heard you, or I read you say once, you you said that this, the secret history is like the perfect uh, version of that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I'm actually rereading it this week because I'm giving a talk on it in a month or two. Oh, um, cool. Oh, where are you yeah, giving that? That's kind of, where are you giving that talk? Uh, <laughs> great question. Um, St. Joseph's College, the, uh, an MFA program called the Writer's Foundry in Brooklyn. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, it's kind of a cool format. They ask you to talk about somebody else's book, which I appreciate. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, but yeah, um, I see that as sort of the perfect book in terms of what I try to do as a writer, what I'm trying to accomplish, which is to write something that's as literary as anything out there, but that is very plot-driven and just has a really strong narrative drive. You mentioned um, the art and the way that art sort of goes through all your books. I actually happen to work at the public theater over in Manhattan. Um, oh, do you? That's, and that's a cool place to work. So as I was reading the beginning, I was like, wow, this production sounds kind of interesting. And then I saw your in the acknowledgments, you mentioned that it was the Kevin Klein Lear from, I don't know, almost eight or nine oh, years ago or now. something? Or, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, um, I, yeah really, I, I love that production. I'm curious about how you feel about art and sort of what it means for humanity. Like the, the way that you choose, you chose two art forms that are not the most popular art forms right now. And sort of mm-hmm. those are the ones that end up surviving. Right, and they're not the most popular art forms, but they're art forms that are completely not at all dependent on technology, which, which you know, in a post-apocalyptic scenario is important. Um, yeah, what I feel about art, it's, it's such a big question, but I guess if I were to boil it down, especially in the context of this book, I feel like art is one of those things that can represent civilization for us. Um, that can remind us of what civilization sorry what civilization is um, and it seems to be something that we sort of incline naturally toward as a species um, you know the the example I find myself giving um, sometimes is the fashion show in Paris immediately following the second world war would have been I guess yeah 1945 1946 so the city is just in horrendous shape there are horrible shortages uh, life's extremely difficult. Um, and they put on a fashion show. And what I've read over the years is how important that was. It was this moment of sort of uh, stating both themselves into the world, like, look, we're more than just survival. This is a sort of a moment of grace. It's something that's important to us. And, you know, in a more general way, um, we, uh, as a species, we play musical instruments in refugee camps. We put on plays in war zones. So, I think that art is something that we're very naturally drawn to. And I think we're drawn to it because it reminds us that there's more than just getting through the day, you know, finding food and shelter and water. Oh, yeah. that speaks so deeply to everything that I love and believe in. <laughs> uh, to both of us, yeah. <laughs> um, in, in your imagination of the end of the world, um, did did something trigger you thinking this way? Or, or did you... Um, or And has it been hard to stop after you finished writing the book? It is hard to stop after I finished writing the book. Um, as I was writing the book, and, and even still now, you know, I'll find myself in any given scenario, like, say, the parking lot of the Home Depot in Brooklyn by the Gowanus Canal, and I'll be thinking, what would this be like? With well, that, it does, does look like a post-apocalyptic world already. 
It kind of does, right? That's why I think about when I'm down there. Um, yeah, or, you know, just walking down the street. You think, what would the street be like with weeds and trees growing through the pavement and no cars and maybe a deer or two? Um, and, yeah, it's uh, it's sort of an unsettling thought exercise. It has stayed with me, <laughs> as it happened. Um, and in terms of what triggered it, for me, I guess part of it is just that I really like post-apocalyptic fiction. Um, you know, I'd read a couple of books that were post-apocalyptic that I really enjoyed. I thought it would be an interesting thing to try. And it was also a way of writing about the modern world, which is obviously kind of a roundabout way of doing it. But, you know, you think of a requiem, for example. Um, you know, one way to, to express something or to write about something is to talk about its absence. So for me, writing a book that was set in this post-apocalyptic world was sort of a way to celebrate the world we have now. The, uh, the cell phones and running water and 911 and electricity, all those other fun things that I think we just completely take for granted a lot of the time. Recently, like uh, my water was turned off because of fixing pipes and just six hours of that was, well, yeah, it was surprising how much I turn on water. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? There's things you don't notice till they're gone. <laughs> yeah. Or when you're in a no cell phone zone um, or a dead zone, I guess. It's like, yeah, it's kind of unsettling. It's strange. The book came out right around the time that everything was getting a little scary with the Ebola crisis, and it just, I remember reading it and feeling like, whoa, this all of a sudden feels especially timely, that idea of, like, what would happen <laughs> right. if all of a sudden, did you ever have a sense while you were writing it or now, since it's happened, that you just sort of look at the world and are like, oh my gosh, like, did I imagine this thing that's going to happen? <laughs> Um, to tell you the truth, you know, this is a really kind of fatalistic thing to admit, but I did a lot of research into um, into the history of pandemics um, and some of the mechanisms of mass contagion. And what you're left with if you do even just some cursory research into that is that there was always going to be another Ebola and another flu epidemic and another measles epidemic. You know, it's just... Um, it's just something that's happened to us over and over and over again as a species. And it's it's unsettling but also hopeful to think about. You know, the, the unsettling part is pretty obvious, which is that you realize that um, if you write a novel in which most of civilization is wiped out by a plague, what you're really writing is just kind of a um, an exaggeration of something that's actually happened over and over and over again. You know, you think of smallpox in North America, for example, or the Black Death in Europe. So, you know, that's that's obviously pretty dark and awful to think about. On the other hand, we are still here as a species, so there's some hope in that. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, uh, it, I guess researching this stuff can kind of lend a sense of inevi- inevitability to, to the Ebola and flu outbreaks. Very cool. You mentioned, too, the idea of... of hope at the same time. The book feels very hopeful in a way that a lot of post-apocalyptic stories don't. Um, Did you feel like you were trying to sort of uh, change the tone a little bit and just do something that was hopeful in the face of terrible catastrophe? I was, yeah, and I'm glad that came through for you. Um, Yeah, there are a couple of factors at play there. One of them was just that as much as I enjoy some of the sort of more horrific post-apocalyptic novels, like um, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, for example, I felt like that ground had been really well covered. You know, we've kind of seen those scenes of chaos and horror and absolute mayhem, which I think is probably accurate to what would follow immediately after a complete societal breakdown. But I think that that state of mayhem wouldn't last forever everywhere on Earth. 
I think that 15 or 20 years out, we'd probably be figuring out how to live a little more peacefully in the world just because mayhem isn't such a sustainable way of life over the long haul. So for me, the key there is the timing. You know, it's not that I think there wouldn't be a horrific period. It's that for me, it was more interesting to write about the period after that. Um, Yeah, and... I did want to write something a little bit hopeful, which sounds strange to say in the context of a post-apocalyptic novel, you know, because it's not like I actually want this to happen. <laughs> but, you know, to me, it was, uh, it was more interesting to think about or to write about a time when, when there maybe would be some hope, you know, when um, there would be probably not the world, probably the world that was lost wouldn't be restored, but maybe a new world would start to would start to appear. So, yeah, it was that. And also, I just didn't really want to write a horror novel. It's just not really my thing. So, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, uh, that leads well into my question, which is the um, the structure of the book is really interesting. And I was kind of curious if, uh, about how that developed in, in the after the fall and before the fall and, um, and the way that right. that came out. Yeah, those overlapping time uh, timelines. That's a structure that I've been playing with since my first novel, Last Night in Montreal, this idea of jumping back and forth in time and between multiple characters. And I've just found it to be a really interesting way to tell a story. You know, it lets you return to the same moments in the plot over and over again from different perspectives, which, which for me is really interesting because I'm interested in, um, in memory, you know, specifically the way in which three different people can experience the same event and remember them completely differently, remember the event completely differently. So there's that. And then it's also, it's kind of a fun way to put together a book. You know, there's always this sort of horrible element to putting together a book. (laughs) It is such a marathon writing a novel. (laughs) But but I really enjoy that, uh, that way of structuring a book, that feeling of putting together this sort of interesting puzzle over the years of revision. Um, yeah, so it's a ha- habit that I've fallen into. I've, I think it might be interesting to write a completely linear story at some point. I really, I really respect novels that can do that. But, but yeah, I've been enjoying this fractured structure. Well, yeah, well, it definitely added a new sort of um, depth to the to to the post apocalyptic genre to have the what, what they were like before the fall, a long long time before the fall. Um, that's good. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. No, it gets marketed as a post-apocalyptic book, which is obviously accurate. But I mean, about half of it takes place in the present day. So, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to give those present day sections almost equal weight. Um, and yeah, it was uh, it was fun to structure in that way. I enjoyed it. Do you do you read while you write? Yeah, I'm pretty much always working in a novel. So, you know, I have friends who don't write books while they're writing books, but I feel like. Um, I would never read if I, <laughs> if I <did> that, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess that me that leads to the question of just uh, uh, what do you what have you read recently that you really loved? Because that's that is kind of the the mo of our podcast. Uh, recommendations? Yeah, I've read. I actually have my notebook here where I've been listing books that I read. Yeah, so I'm reading the Secret History right now. Um, and the last book I read that I really loved was Tiger Man by Nick Harkaway. Oh, I love that uh, book. Have you, isn't that fantastic? <laughs> He's so good. So amazing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. All of his work, I think, is amazing. And, you know, each new book is just feeling of what will we do next. And, yeah, I thought Tiger Man was fantastic. Um, 
And then I also just read, pull out my little notebook here. Um, oh, a really great short story collection, uh, Man v. Nature by Diane Cook. It's hilarious and completely weird and totally great. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, thanks. Those, uh, actually, Drew, in a previous podcast, recommended Tiger Man already, I think, once. So we're going to have to definitely read. I think you were just talking about it, that you it would probably be in the T.O.B. Oh, yeah. I wish it had been. God, I love what Nick does. It's so great. Yeah. You dro- drop a lot of like comic book references and some nerdy, geeky world of the, the Star Trek and... Star Trek Voyager. I mean, I remember watching that show and my friends who were Star Trek fans being like, ooh, that one? <laughs> that one's a little... That's a deeper one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was just curious, that is, that, is that a character yeah, thing I, or is that you? <laughs> that's a good question. I um, I guess, uh, I mean, for me, just my, the Star Trek... Um, Star Trek reference in the book, that line, survival is insufficient. Mm-hmm. For me, it was all about that reference, not Star Trek itself. Although, you know, Star Trek was cool. I watched a lot of Star Trek when I was a teenager. But, yeah, that, that one line, um, survival is insufficient, it just seemed to me to be such a concise and elegant expression of what's sort of the book's entire thesis statement. You know, that inclination toward art after disaster, and the idea that survival isn't enough. Um, yeah, so it was that. And... The comic books, I haven't read a ton of comic books, but I think it's a really cool form. I've been getting more into graphic novels recently, and um, I've been reading graphic memoirs, which I think are really interesting. Alison Bechdel's work and uh, Roz Chaff's book. Um, yeah, so I think it's a really cool form. Is it something you feel like you'd ever experiment with? I mean, I know that as I was reading the novel, I kept thinking about, wow, I'd love to read all of, of Dr. Eleven and see what this is. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting you should say that. Yeah, I've actually been talking with Vintage, who's um, putting out the paperback of Station Eleven, about the possibility of doing a, a Doctor Eleven comic book to go with it. Cool. I think it would be so cool. Uh, yeah, so, you know, in theory, I'm not really supposed to be working on it, because they were like, you know, don't spend too much time on this until we find an illustrator and get it all locked down. But I keep going back to my comic book script and putting it together. I think, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting form. They're uh, they're written like screenplays, almost. Um it's really fun kind of imagining what each panel would be and what the storyline looks like. And yeah, I would like to do comics at some point. It's the short answer to that rambling question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we are about to come into March, uh, you know, February leads to March as um, time turns. As it does. Yeah. And uh, we are both really obsessed with the tournament of books in which station 11 is a contender. And I was just curious oh, if you're um, if you're following that. Or do you know? Do you, did you know you were involved in it? <laughs> yeah, I knew I was a contender. I didn't know it started. Did it start in March or uh, February? It starts in March. It's it's the same time as okay. March Madness. So. Oh, excellent. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a cool thing. I, I love the I love concept like the bracket system for books. Um, yeah, I, I've followed it every year. I've never been in it before. Um, and so. So then do you do you have an idea of your chances like who you who do you think you could go up against I mean you know Right yeah it's um I seem to recall in the past they'll often put up put books against each other that are kind of similar at least in the opening rounds so mm-hmm. I assume I'll be knocked out by David Mitchell like in round 1 or 2 but it'll still be cool to follow. <laughs> 
I don't, I don't know. I'm going to, I mean, Christopher, I'm not going to speak for you. I'm putting my money, I think, on your book. Yeah. Actually, I, we... Really? I, That's so nice. Thank yeah, you. I think it's... It, your book, um, one thing that the tournament does love is ambition. And your book is as ambitious, but it's still uh, in that very nice, nearly 400-page literary length. While, while David Mitchell's book is a little, gets a little long. It's very long. Yeah, I loved it, though. It's such a great book. Yeah, I enjoyed reading it, yeah. too. But is there anything that somebody, in all the press you've done, so is there like something that people haven't asked you that you are just begging somebody to ask and they never do? <laughs> it's funny. I get this question all the time, and I always freeze <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah, I need to come up with something for that question, like some really fabulous thing. Um, yeah, I guess the short answer is no. There's a... There's never a question at the end of the interview, um, or very rarely a question at the end of the interview that I can think of that hasn't been covered. Um, I actually do have. Asking a, that, <laughs> I do have an, okay. a, another question, which is um, sure. A few people have talked about this being the beginning of a series, and 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 I was curious if you've ever thought about writing a sequel to any of your books or this one, and uh, and if you were thinking about sequel possibilities while you were writing this. No, I really wasn't. I um, I sort of felt like I'd said everything I wanted to say about the end of the world. So I have no immediate plans for Station 12. But, um, you know, I do think about some of the characters that were in my previous books, you know, both this one and some characters in the first three novels. And I do think that I'll eventually bring, you know, at least one or two of them back. As, um, you know, you sort of get attached, and they seem like interesting people, and then think about different narrative possibilities from different points in their lives before or after the novel that you put them in. So, yeah, so probably some of the characters from Station Eleven will recur at some point, but I think those characters will recur in very different stories than the book. Yeah, I look forward to to meeting them again. Oh, speaking of your your (laughs) other stories, I guess this is a good Mm -hmm. sort of wrap-up-y sort of question. For somebody who's come to your work through Station Eleven, Mm. What? Which of your three previous novels would you recommend they go to next? He says as he pulls up Amazon right now. <laughs> right. Um, I, I sort of. That's a good question. I um, I find I tend to like my novels sort of in reverse chronological order. Like I think that Station Eleven is better than the Lola Quartet, which was better than The Singer's Gun, which was better than Last Night in Montreal. Um, if an interested reader were to wait until September, uh, those books are being reissued in paperback by Vintage. And I made a few small changes to them, which I think improved them a little bit. So, yeah, so new editions are coming out um, sometime in the fall. And, yeah, that could be that could be worth waiting for if you're inclined to read them. Very cool. Yeah, very awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, for coming on So Many Damn Books. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, and oh, thanks for writing such an yeah. awesome book. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and good luck in thank the you. tournament. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah, we will we'll be cheering for you. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks for interviewing me. Woo! I'm going to, in terms of recommendations, um, we've been talking a lot about the tournament and picking up these books it can be nice to all of a sudden take a break right if you have a recommendation out there for tournament books readers like take a break read something else right what would that be 
Well, I'm actually going to recommend a really good audiobook that was actually a Tournament of Books contender the year it came out, which is Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. Ooh, yeah. It's an incredible audiobook, and it's a great book. Uh, I like that book. So if you read it or you listen to it, it's just excellent. It's about uh, the the filming of the the you know storied box office bomb Cleopatra, sort of, but it's more about this uh, hotel on the coast of Italy, mm-hmm. uh, where one of the stars, the would be stars of Cleopatra, is sent away because of her being sick, probably. And uh, it's about the, the the caretaker of the hotel who sort of falls for her, and it's about the Hollywood system and all sorts of fun things. And it's just, you would never, I don't know, I, I, you'd never expect this book from Jess Walter, to tell you the truth. Yeah. It's just a really, it's really fun. Nice. What about you? Um, mine is one of those sort of frothy things. Um, the first book in... Jim Butcher's uh, The Dresden Files series. Oh. And, um, I've been meaning to get into that. It's just sort of, um, it's daunting because there's like 6,000 of them now. How many are there? I think I just read the 15th, maybe? Yeah. And he's, I think he's talking about, he has plans for maybe another like six or seven or something. I mean, wow. it, there's a lot. Uh, this one, Stormfront, it's, you know, it's just, it's fun, it's light, you can sit down and read it, you don't have to put that much thought into it. Harry Dresden, the main character, is a uh, wizard for hire in Chicago, he's the only registered wizard in the phone book, he's got like a little <laughs> PI office, you know, it's that sort of like goofy thing. Um, and they're tiny paperbacks, right? You can fit this in your back pocket oh, and, yeah. and head to the park if you You know, and the covers, the covers look pulpy. It's like the sort of semi-photoshopped, like, here's a serious-looking dude in a duster with a wizard staff and <laughs> stuff flowing around behind him. Yeah. Um, but the, the books are better than their covers. Good. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, it's fun it, to just, you know, vacation for a little while. Sure. Well, that sounds good. Um, all right, so I guess that's it for us this, yeah. this time around. Thanks so much for listening. Um, we, and, and what? What? I don't know. I was, uh, next time. Yeah, next time. We'll be doing um, another Tournament of Books contender, David Mitchell's The Bone Clocks. Yes. Uh, so bony. So time. So clocky. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, please stick with us. On that, on <laughs> please, that note, please do. We'll try to do better. We're, we're trying. <laughs> All right. Goodbye. <laughs> my my mom actually won't say the name of our podcast. Really? Yeah, she will say so many dang or so many darn books. Oh.